If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you please to open them to Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, to chapter 22, verse 5. It's the same passage as last week. Uh, it's just part two, and next week will... Well, not next week. I won't be here next week, but the week after that will be part three. Uh, I want to read all of it together because it goes together. Uh, it's good to make a practice not just of reading chapters and verses, but but sections of Scripture that form complete thoughts. So we're going to read the whole section to see how it all fits together. Uh, but before we do, I just want to clarify something from last week. I was uh, a bit harder on opposing viewpoints in the book of Revelation than normally I've been in the past. And afterwards, some people came, uh, came up to me afterward and they brought their concerns to my attention. And I'm thankful that they did. So just let me be clear. I was not talking about people who in general believe this passage is a, a literal description of a city descending from heaven. And you may not know this, but in many Christian institutions and in commentaries, it's very common to insist dogmatically that unless you take the book of Revelation absolutely literally, then you fail to take the Bible seriously. And so it's said if, the, if you approach the book symbolically, as we have been doing, You've misrepresented Scripture, deviated from the truth, and deceived those who hear you. And so in the eyes of many, including commentators I've read and even some professors I've sat under, to approach the book of Revelation as we have been, as a, a symbolic book, it's, it's tantamount to denying the faith. And that kind of attitude, that's intolerable. That obstinate approach that demands a, a crass literalism, it confuses the whole book and and accuses any alternative of infidelity to the Word and to Christ. It, there's no place for that. And so if you believed, or believed that the city had uh, streets of gold and gates of pearl, I apologize for last week if I offended you. But if you believe that there is only this one singular approach to the book and every other interpretation is accursed, well, then you've cursed the whole of church history because most of them interpreted it that way. And so I would ask you, if you hold to that view very strongly, I would just ask you to consider that there are less confusing approaches to the book. And I'm not saying they have to become your convictions. They don't. But I hope you see the clarity taking the book symbolically brings to the book, the hope and encouragement it gives to the church, and, and I hope you can appreciate the faithful effort to ground the book of Revelation in the rest of Scripture according to the symbolism in the book. So with all that in mind, let's wade once more into this wonderful description of the world to come, the heavenly world, the eternal state, in Revelation 21.9-22.5. through 22, 5. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the city the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will have no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. What a wonderful encouragement it is to all of us. And I pray, Lord, that You would write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. I pray that when we leave, we would not leave this place the same people who entered in, but that we would be more like Your Son, loving and patient and kind. That we would be more prepared to suffer loss in this life for gain in the life to come. That our eyes would be more fixed on You, O Lord. That we would know You better, more fully. I pray that You would help me to preach and that You would help us to hear, Lord. All that we have is from You and for You and to You. And we can do nothing apart from You. And so, Lord, we ask, help us this morning. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Well, very often Christianity is accused of being a kind of pie-in-the-sky religion. Something that's promised, and the promises it makes, they're too good to be true, they're utterly unrealistic, and they will never come to pass. That's why Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the masses. And that's a view that prevails today. Christianity, it comforts people in their misery, it gives answers to their deepest questions, it provides meaning to their lives, and even if what is hoped for never comes to pass, Christianity has its place as a, a useful crutch. Heaven and eternal life and forgiveness of sins and a clear conscience before God, they, they do a good job 
at making your trip into the dirt more agreeable. And so if it works for you, it's true for you. But in the end, it's really all in your mind. There's no basis for any of it in reality. And nothing hoped for actually comes. Christianity, in in that sense, it's a a coping mechanism with the miseries of this life. It's, It's a hopeful fantasy. Well, how do you know that isn't true? How do you know that your hope is real? And it's not just some feel-good fantasy. How do you know that you're not looking forward to something that will never materialize? Well, the answer is quite simple. You know it because of the teachings of Jesus Christ. He is the one who assures us of these promises. Now, it's one thing for someone to make a promise. It's something else to back up that promise by healing the lame and healing the sick. You know, it's one thing for someone to say, I am speaking the truth. It's something else to back up that truth by being killed and rising again from the grave. And so Jesus' resurrection and His many miracles doing things that only God can do, they're God's attestation that His words are trustworthy and true. I mean, it's, it's easy to shrug off the words of somebody who is you know, preaching in the square, saying all kinds of things. And you say, okay, I hear them, but I can, just, I can just kind of put that aside and not pay too much attention. But imagine if the same man walked through the hospital and healed everyone there was, uh, in there so that the hospital was emptied out. And then he says these same things again. You're going to pay a little more attention. And then you see the man be killed, died, and then three days later, there he is preaching again. You're probably going to pay a lot of attention because you, there's something about this man that I need to know. I need to pay attention to what he's saying because what he is saying is true. Well, because of the miracles and because of the resurrection, we can trust what Christ told us. We can trust what He said in John chapter 11. You remember when He raised Lazarus from the grave? He assures Martha, what? What does He tell her? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in Me will not die. That's the promise. You believe in Christ, no death. You pass from life to life. Or a few chapters later in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in Me, or believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So in John 14, what's about to happen? The disciples, they're about to endure some of the greatest trials of their lives. Their Master, Christ, He will be struck, crucified, and the sheep, the disciples, they'll be scattered. They'll have no real sense of Christ's nearness. They'll be left alone. How will the Lord prepare them for this? Well, he does it with an order. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. That's a a command. Don't let it happen. Dark days are ahead of you. You will be tempted to despair. You will be tempted to be discouraged, to run away. Trouble will be assaulting your soul. And when it does, because it will, don't give in. So Jesus is telling his disciples, to to strengthen them. When trouble knocks at the door of your heart, open the door, but not to let it in, to fend it off. And then He tells us how. Now, it's one thing to say to do it, but not to tell you how is not particularly helpful. 
So he tells us, instead of being troubled, believe in God. And Jesus says, believe also in me. Believe in Christ, in His Word. And so you see, it's, it's faith that fights for the troubled heart. Faith in what? It's faith in the promises that He makes. Faith in the promises of life to come. Do not be troubled, He says. Believe what I said. Jesus is preparing a place for you in heaven. And He tells us if it wasn't true, He would have said so. If it was just uh, you know, pie-in-the-sky promises to get us through the day, Jesus would have told us. He wasn't lying when He made these promises. He wasn't delusional. He meant it. And He backed it up. He's not going to let us to continue on in this if it's not true. But it is true. And you can take that truth like a torch and you can shine it in any troubling darkness. And now look at verse 3 of John 14, if you've turned there. John 14, verse 3. If not, I'll, I'll read it. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. This directly ties John 14, 1, 2, and 3 to what we just read in Revelation. We'll say, well, how? I don't see that connection. How is Revelation 21, what we read, connected to what we see here in John 14? Well, Revelation 21 is the description of a bride, right? Coming down from heaven. The city is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. John 14.3 is the language of marriage. You see, in Jesus' day, life for a young man, it was pretty simple. You grew up, you learned your father's trade, and then around 20, you would get married. And part of that marriage process was a, a betrothal, and in that betrothal, you would prove that you could financially support a wife and a family, and then once that was settled, you would have about a year to build a place for your new family to stay. And sometimes it was a separate home or a, or a tent on the family plot, but most often it was a room built onto an existing structure. And so when Jesus says He is going to prepare a place for you, He doesn't mean just a place for you individually to stay in. He means He is making a place where we can be with Him. Right? He says, that where I am, you may be also. I will take you to Myself. He means He is preparing a place for His bride, the church. And so the question, what will that place be like? Last week we saw a description of the bride herself, but, but as we make our way through this passage, we're beginning to see what that place looks like. Not literally, of course, but what is it that Jesus is preparing for those who have put their hope in Him? The things of this world will pass away, the, the order of it, and a new order of things will come. Well, this passage gives us a glimpse into what that order of things will be. And so if you're, you're taking notes from last week, this is point Point seven. We're moving from a description of the bride to a description of the city. And what you see in the middle of this passage is that the city's walls, their foundations, are chock full of jewels and precious stones. Now this, of course, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is a reference to the breastplate or the ephod, the priestly garment that the high priest would wear. You read about it in Exodus 28 and Exodus 39. It was a plate to be worn over the heart of the priest 
where he carried out his priestly duties. And it had 12 stones attached to it, and each stone represented one of the tribes of God's people. Now, some of the stones listed in Exodus 28, they don't have exact matches here in what we've read in Revelation, but they do have equivalents. Eight of them are identical, and four of them are the same stone by a different name. So they're, they are the same. In Exodus, and the reason I say it is I don't want you to go back and read Exodus and say, well, all of these stones are different. Yes, in Exodus, Hebrew names for the stones. Here, it's the Greek names for the stones. So I don't want you to be confused by that. But in Exodus, the garment of the priest, it was a kind of miniature temple in and of itself. And we're told that everything about the temple, including the priestly garments, was a small replica of a heavenly reality. That means whatever is symbolized by the ephod, the stone-studded breastplate, it's being symbolized here. The significance of this garment, this piece of priestly clothing, the significance that is ascribed to it is here in Revelation. It's in play. And that significance is summarized in a single word. Intercession. The high priest was to carry these stones which represented God's people over his heart while he ministered. It reminded him. This is what it was. It was a reminder to him that the primary focus of his job was to mediate and intercede on their behalf. He wasn't going for himself. He was going on behalf of the people. The people of God were to be on his heart just as they were over his heart. And Christ... Our great high priest, he bore us on his heart like no other high priest ever could. Hebrews calls him the greater high priest who never dies, but who always lives to intercede for us. And so, so, so put it together. What is the symbolism being described for us here? The intercession of Christ, his prayers and pleading on our behalf are the foundation on which our security is built. The stones of these foundations of the wall are the same stones that form the breastplate of the intercession of the priest. Our our eternal security is founded on the love and intercession of Christ. Because He's prayed for us, because He keeps us, we are safe to to never be lost or to wander again. You wonder, I'm going to, to live for Christ. I'm going to go into that heavenly place. What's to stop me from being kicked out one day? What's to stop it all from being repeated? Jesus Christ has shed His blood for my soul and He ever lives to intercede on my behalf and so I am safe. But then that's not the only place these stones appear in the Old Testament. Another description is found in Isaiah 54, 4-14, through and we won't read it all, but in that passage, God is speaking to His bride. And she is downtrodden, she is trampled, and she has sinned against Him. She's committed, in Isaiah we're told, spiritual adultery. How does God respond? Well, He responds by promising that He will not hold it against her, and that He will bring her back, and that He will make her safe, and her sins will not condemn her anymore. In verse 9 and 10, He says this to His bride, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, 
So I have sworn that I will no more be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Why? Why will He never be angry again? Why will the earth pass away before His love does? Why will His covenant of peace never be broken? Verses 11 and 12. O afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stone in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and your walls of precious stones. Now, this is poetic language that we have repeated in Revelation. It's language that reminds us of the breastplate over the heart of the high priest. It's language that ought to remind us of His intercession, of His praying for us on our behalf that our sins not be held against us. And from this vantage point, on this side of the cross, it reminds us of the ongoing work of Christ for us. His intercession, His prayers for us are like a great wall for the storm-tossed, disenfranchised, disheartened soul. Christ prays for you, and His prayers are answered. And because His prayers are answered, they're like a wall around you so that your sin will never trouble you again. I do not need to remind you that this begins today in this life, but when heaven comes, it will be complete. There will never be a sense of God's anger against sin in the new creation. The intercession and the work of Christ, it guarantees it. Everything that causes calamity, everything that brings hardship, all sin, everything that causes suffering, it will be gone forever. It will not enter into God's new earth. Why? Eight point. It is a holy city. Just as the church today is holy or is being made holy, the city will be perfectly holy. It will be set apart and will be free from anything that defiles. Now, I forget who it was, but they wrote that, that there were three effects of the fall on humanity. Three effects the, the fall has on people, sin has on people. One, it makes us guilty. It corrupts us morally. And it leaves us in a world of misery. Well, God is dealing with those problems in the Gospel, isn't He? Guilt, that has been dealt with once and for all, fully. No one in Christ is guilty before God. Everyone who puts their trust in Him has all their guilty stains taken away. Their debt's been paid. They've died in Christ. No guilt to condemn you anymore. It is finished in Christ. And the moral corruption, everybody knows what this is. Paul speaks about it in Romans 7. I do not do the things I want to do. And how many times have you done something and you said, why did I do this? You knew it shouldn't have been done and you did it anyway and you don't even know why you did it. That's being dealt with. It's a, it's a work in progress as God, through His Spirit, sanctifies us and prunes us and refines us and makes us more like Christ. It's like the kid's song. You know the kid's song, right? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. How loving and patient He must be to still be working on me. But it won't be a work in progress forever. He will finish what He started. And lastly, the world of misery. All of these problems that come and you have no power over them at all and they just happen. 
That will exist until this day comes, but when it does, the world will be miserable no more. It will be a holy place, all of it. It will be a place fitting for God to walk among His people with nothing to offend Him. Which is why, and again, if you're taking notes, you can make this eight and a half, there is no temple in this city. Now that might surprise you. No temple in heaven? Well, what is a temple? A temple is is a meeting place with God. If you were to ask a pious Jew in the centuries before Christ, if you were to say, where is God? He would have an answer. No hesitation. God is in the temple. That's where He said He would make His presence dwell. That's where He is. And if you live 20 miles north of Jerusalem, you live 20 miles north of God. But even now, if you were to ask a Christian, where is God today? Where is the temple? How would he or she answer? Well, they would answer the same way Paul does in Corinthians. We are the temple. And God exists where His church exists. He exists where His people are. You know, if you want to meet with God today, where do you do so? You do it in the church. And I don't just mean in a building. I mean among the people of God. They are the people. We are the temple. But John sees no temple here. Does that mean that God doesn't meet with anyone anymore? No, no, the opposite is true. The reason there is no temple is because God fills all things. The end of, uh, the end of the verse says, for God and its, and the Lamb are its temple. And so John doesn't see a physical temple. You know, it's, it's amazing. In any city, and it really doesn't matter where you go, they might not be the largest buildings there, but the most impressive buildings are always the temples, the religious buildings. I remember when I lived in Washington, D.C., there was a, there was a Hindu temple just down the street. Now, I'll tell you what, it matched anything you could find built in Washington. It was a magnificent building. You could just see these pure white spires of it. It's incredible. And even in Washington, if you were to go into the city, into the Capitol building, do you know what it was designed to be? It was designed to be a temple. A temple of democracy, but a temple nonetheless. And so if you ever get a chance to go and see it, you should take that chance. If you go inside, inside and look up, there's a a massive rotunda, a big dome with a a painting in it, and it's called the Apothesis of George Washington. Right? George Washington being transformed into a god. Now, I don't care to comment on the painting. It's besides the point. The point is, temples stand out. Temples here on earth, they are the most... Magnificent buildings we build. Think of Notre Dame in France or the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Magnificent buildings. Well, when John gets to this heavenly place and sees it, he doesn't see any of them. Why? Because he sees something better. He sees that the whole city is the temple of God and of the Lamb. The whole city. Why is that better? Well, you have to understand, in the Old Testament, in the earthly temple, it was a place where people met with God, but it was also a place that separated men from God. The temple was a a shield or a barrier. You could only draw near under certain circumstances. And in the construction of the temple, the temple was segregated, wasn't it? There was the court of the Gentiles, and then the court of the women, and then the court of the men, then the court of the priests, and the court of God. There was only so far that you could go. Access was limited. And not because God was busy or because He he didn't like interruptions, but because God was holy. 
and the whole structure of the temple. Yes, God was with His people, but His people had very limited access to Him. And we still experience this even today in a way, don't we? We have access to God. We can pray. The Spirit is with us, but there is a sense of of distance, isn't there? Our, Our sinful heritage limits us. But there, the place where we're going, we will be so pure that we will not need to fear direct contact with a holy God. No buffer. And yes, again, we we enjoy that today as Christians, as we are in Christ. We are the temple of God, but it's only a shadow of the reality awaiting us. And now maybe you've wondered why we haven't said anything about the dimensions of the city. When the city comes down, it's measured. And we're told it's 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. Your translation may have this changed to 1,380 miles or 1,500 miles, which is unfortunate because that's not what it says. It's 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. And if you remember, numbers in this book are symbolic. And the number 12 is symbolic of the fullness of God's people. We saw this back with 144,000. They aren't the elect Jews, but are all of those who are being saved. The same thing's happening here. The city is for all of those who have been or will be or are being saved. They're headed to this place and no one's going to be left out. But that's not the main point. The main point, the, the one important thing in this whole description of the size of the city is that it is a perfect cube. I was very disheartened once. I was talking to a student who was going to a, a Bible college that I will not name. And the student, they told me that when they reached this point studying through the book of Revelation, the professor noted that this city, which of course must be a literal physical city, was actually in the shape of a pyramid. And he said it has to be a pyramid because rivers of life flow down from the throne in the center of it. And if it was a cube, how could the waters flow down? So it has to be a pyramid. This is what I mean when I say you can't interpret symbols literally. If you take the symbolism literally, you end up with literal absurdity. And it is. I mean, to make this a pyramid because it allows you to interpret it literally, that makes you miss the whole point of the chapter. And it can't be a pyramid anyway because it says it's square with four corners. It's a cube. And so why am I stressing this? I I am stressing this because this is probably the most important thing in the whole chapter. And if you miss it, you miss the point. Because there is another very important cube in the Bible. Do you know where it is? If you read the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple, then you know what it is. It's the Holy of Holies. It's the place in the temple where God's presence actually dwelled. It's the place that housed the Ark of the Covenant, the earthly throne of God, the place where no one could enter in except the high priest, and then only once a year, and if he came or anyone came any other time, they would be killed. Killed by God. Because he entered into his presence unprepared. It was a a forbidden place. Not because it was bad, but because it was too holy for mortal man to endure. It's like the sun. The sun is a wonderful thing. It warms the earth. It grows our food. It illuminates everything. Life would not be possible without the sun that shines down in the sky. It's a good thing. But if you get too close to the sun, you are consumed. And if you stare at it too long, 
you go blind. In a similar way, God is the source of all life and He is good. But He is also so glorious, so radiant, that if we draw near to Him unprepared, we can't survive the encounter. Not because He's bad, but because He is so good. It had to contain Himself. And that containment was the 45 by 45 by 45 cubit uh, cube in the temple called the Holy of Holies. And so you see the picture here is that the dwelling place of God, that holy place, it's no longer going to be limited to the back room of a temple. All right, right now, again, the temple is the church and God dwells in a limited, I mean a real, a full, but a limited way with His people. But a day is coming when the presence of God will overflow His banks and it will fill every nook and cranny of creation. It won't be like a temple. It won't be like a garden. It won't even be like the spiritual temple in the church. It will be a universal Eden where we will always walk with God. And it won't matter where you are or what you're doing. You will always be fully conscious and filled with joy living eternity in the unmeasured presence of God. The universe will become a fitting vessel for His glory when the heavens and earth are made one. Which means, number nine, this new creation will be a place of worship. And it's not going to be like a church service. I'm sure that we'll have them, but eternity will not be a constant sermon, song, and prayer. I mean, some people, they think that way. They think of, of heaven as going to be a 24-hour, a day, seven-day-a-week church service. Well, it will be 24-7 worship and praise, but not like a church service. You know what it will be like? Just think for a moment. How, how do you praise God and worship Him today? Primarily by obeying Him. By, by doing what He's called you to do. By living as He's called you to live. And, and becoming what He's called you to be. I mean, what good is it really to come to church and praise Him and, and listen to the sermon and sing the songs and then go out and live in a way that denies Him? Right? Sing a song and sit under a sermon and then go home and be miserable to your family and, and lazy and hateful. No, you, you cannot praise God rightly if your heart's desire is not to become more like Him. There's no place for that kind of hypocrisy. This is why Samuel says obedience is better than sacrifice. Well, the primary way we'll worship in eternity is not by singing songs or preaching sermons or studying Scripture. The primary way we will worship in eternity is by living out our lives bearing His image. And this means, just like Adam in the garden you will have a job to do in heaven. And you will enjoy it. And you will do it perfectly. And if you have a hobby here, something you enjoy, I'm sure whatever it is, you will do something equivalent or better there. There will be musicians and painters and, and I don't know, engineers and explorers. Who knows? It's a, it's a pretty big universe. And we'll have an eternity of time. But the one thing we do know is it's not going to be dull. It's going to be Glorious. I mean, just imagine work, right? Your body won't ache. Your attitude will always be good. Even things uh, that, that could frustrate you, if they could happen, they won't. And if they do, you won't be frustrated anyway. I mean, can you imagine what kind of a world that will be? Can you imagine the, the kind of pro productivity you'll have? The kind of satisfaction as everything is done for the good of your fellow man and the glory of God? No one can conceive 
of the kind of world the Lord has prepared for those who love Him. And all of it, all of it will be worship. In Zechariah 14, it says, Even the pots and pans in your kitchen and the bells on the horses will be holy to the Lord. Mundane things like cooking for uh, cooking or, or digging a hole or planting a crop, all of it will give great glory to God because all of your life will be worship. Number 10, there is no sun or moon there. And now that would be unsettling to live in a world with no sun or moon. But there is also no darkness. And the reason there's no darkness, we're told, is the Lord is its light. But that does not mean that you know, the stars fall from the sky or the world is literally illumined by the lamp of the Lamb. It's symbolic language. And verse 24 gives us the symbol. By this light, the nations walk. We will walk, live in the light of the Lamb. And this is a, a twofold promise. For one, it means there's not going to be anything dark there. Nothing evil. And two, it means that the Lord God will guide us directly. He is near to us. I mean, how many times have you ever wondered, you know, what direction should I go in my life? You had to make a decision and you just didn't know. What will really please the Lord? You ever had a, a come to a fork in the road and, and have to consider that question? And you know, you search the Scriptures and you weighed your options. Maybe you prayed. Maybe you called, called your friends and you still weren't sure. You know, it can be a trying, it can be a, a difficult, uh, even a paralyzing thing for the believer, for anybody, especially when you, you really want to please God and maybe you're a new believer and you just don't know. Or even when you've walked with Him for a while and you've enjoyed sweet fellowship with the Lord, but all of a sudden it seems like you're in the dark and you have no light. The clouds have rolled in. His face is, is covered and you don't know why. And it seems as though the Lord is far off or He's distant or unconcerned or worst of all, displeased. It's like He's just lost interest in you. Those are two experiences that nobody enjoys. Either not knowing what to do or feeling the Lord is far off no matter what you do. But what a comfort is this verse. In the, in the church today, yes, you get, you get rays of spiritual light as as though beams, uh, sunbeams breaking through the clouds. But then, the face of the Lord will be as perceptible as the sun shining in the sky. In that place, it's always an unclouded day. Constant awareness of and joy in the presence of the Lord. His countenance lifted up upon you. I mean, can you imagine it? Seeing the Lord in everything with perfect clarity? always aware of His immediate presence more than you have ever experienced in this life. I mean, one of the reasons why we're given supernatural bodies is so that we will be able to endure such a joy. Today, we take so much by faith. We live by faith. But then it won't be by faith any longer and we will see what we have believed in. He will be as clear as a bright-lit, well-marked path. And the grace and fullness of God, it will be as easy to discern as the sun shining in the cloudless noonday sky. Isaiah 60, it says, because of this, all of your mourning, all of your sorrow, whatever it is, it will come to an end. In this life, under this sun, there is toil and trouble and pain. But there are none of those things under the light of God's countenance. 
We will be with Him, and He will be with us perfectly in every way. And your soul will be satisfied. And if you haven't noticed, the focus of, on these verses is God with us. Last week, it was God's love for His people, God's love for the bride. This really, uh, this week really, it's what that love accomplishes. We will be with Him. We will live in perfect union with our God and the divide that separates us will be closed. Closed flawlessly, not even a scar. And as wonderful as all of this is, and it is wonderful, it can be a daunting thing for people. When they hear about the holiness of God, maybe when you hear about the goodness of heaven and the perfections of His glory, the purity of His domain, the joy that you will experience, the love that will never end, and so much more, the initial reaction is one of hope and of desire. You hear about this and you say, a place like that really exists? A place without pain? A perfect place with nothing wrong ever? A place where we'll walk with God in the light of His love? And, and it almost seems like it's too good to be true. And then the smile fades and the head begins to hang and a realization sets in. For God is holy, and I'm not. And you begin to doubt, don't you? And you begin to be discouraged. Because sometimes when you're reminded of what this kind of holiness and perfection looks like, what a world like this might be like, all you can think about is how little of it exists in your own life. And you begin to think, well, my life doesn't measure up to this. I'm not like God. I, I don't belong in that heavenly world. I hardly belong here in this building. And the course that you hear over and over is you're not good enough. But you know what? It's true. You're not good enough. And neither am I. And neither of us belong in that place. And nobody deserves it. And that's okay. Because we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who is good enough, who does belong there, and who deserves entry. Nobody gets in there. Listen, nobody is going to go there and stand before God unashamed and enjoy because they were good enough or they had done enough or they earned it or they deserved it. Nobody gets there on their own merit. The only way anyone will get there is on His. You and I get there on the merit, on the worth, on the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was good enough. He didn't just deserve entry, but He deserved a seat on the throne. And He belongs there more than absolutely anybody. And what did He do? He gave it up. He laid it aside so that He could portion it out to those who trust in Him. And so you say, well, I'm a sinner. Yes, and Christ died for sinners to eradicate their guilt and set them free. You say, I don't belong there. Yes, but He does. And you're welcome because you go with Him. Well, you say, I'm not like Him. This is true. But it is equally true that you will be like Him as He is. We say, I'm still not good enough. And you never will be. And because you never will be, Christ has given you His righteousness, which is more than enough. 
This is what He does for those who trust Him. Maybe you've been trusting Him for years. Well, let this encourage you to press on and remind you that your hope is in Him and that hope will not be disappointed. Or maybe you've never trusted in Christ and you've never come to Him for mercy or forgiveness at all. Nothing needs to stop you. His arms are open wide to receive you. And though in this life, yes, you will have trouble, in the life to come, it's not pie in the sky. It's a sure and steady promise and an anchor for your soul. You can trust His words. They will not disappoint. And when He brings you there to be with Him, you will spend eternity unashamed and unafraid and will, listen, never ever doubt His ability to forgive you or His ability to love you ever again. I think one of the hardest things, well, if you're like me, one of the hardest things to believe what takes more faith than just about absolutely anything is when you look in the Scriptures and you see what it says about sin. And it's almost like looking in a mirror. And you see yourself in that mirror and the picture isn't pretty. To see what it says. Because we can think we're doing pretty good and then we learn, well, what does God say? Be holy. Be perfect as God is perfect. I start to see all kinds of chinks and holes in my spiritual armor. I'm not righteous before Him. And I begin to doubt. Can He really forgive me? Can He really love me as much as He says He does? Listen, when you enter into that temple paradise, you will finally, you will finally see how far God has removed all of your guilt and sins from you. You will understand what it means when He says, I have washed them all away and made you clean. You'll realize as the psalmist says, how far the east is from the west. For that's how far He has removed your transgressions from you. And you will understand the fullness and the extent to which the blood of Christ purifies you and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And when you see it, you perceive it not by faith, but by full perception what Jesus has done for you, it will become impossible to doubt or fear anymore. You will have the fullest awareness of your atonement and forgiveness in Christ. And because of that, and because of Him, you will never again question whether or not you belong. You will never again question whether or not you should be in that holy place. You'll know that you don't. You'll know that you shouldn't be. And you will rejoice forever because your admission is not your worth, but the perfect satisfaction of Christ, which is better and is sure than anything you could ever hope to attain yourself. Heaven, life, it's yours because Christ will be yours and you will be His for all time. This is why heaven is heaven. Because we will be His people. And He will be our God. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us to believe this. Lord, it's hard to believe. And I look at my own life, I see so little that I could lift up to commend myself to entry. Lord, it all falls short, but You never fall short. And You are my hope, and You are all of our hope and our only plea. 
It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Help us to believe this, Lord, so that when we look forward to this heavenly place, we can look with longing. And looking there, our, our trials and troubles of this world, that they would grow dimmer and dimmer in the light of Your glory and grace. Thank You, Lord, that You have pardoned us, forgiven us, reconciled us, that no guilt or shame of ours can bar us any longer. But You have made a way in Christ. Help us all to believe it and to trust in Him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, renewing our trust in Christ. But He is our only hope. And it's to Him we look and raise our hearts and sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.